This is a special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, ISSCR Day 4 with Dr. Sheila Chari. Hey everybody, we're Daylon in a room. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. This week, Arun and I have been attending the 2021 ISSCR annual meeting and releasing special episodes discussing some of the highlights. We've also been chatting with special guests, including Dr. Sheila Chari, Editor-in-Chief at Cell Stem Cell, who we'll be hearing from in just a bit. What's more, we've taken the plunge to release these episodes not only in their traditional podcast format, but also as video episodes, which you can find on the Stem Cell Podcast website or Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel. We're going to kick things off in just a minute, but before we get to that... Check out tomorrow morning's plenary session on cell therapy and tissue engineering for cutting-edge approaches by Sonia Schrepfer, Shubing Chen, Paul Tassar, and Wolfram Zimmerman. The session is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies, which provides reagents and supports for HPSC-derived cell and gene therapies. For additional information on how stem cell can support your research from discovery to the clinic, visit the Stem Cell Virtual Booth. And we'll pick things up pick things up from where we left off yesterday. And that is at the ISCR Achievement Award session, session, headlined by none other than Dr. Janet Rawson. From embryos to blastocysts and stem cell embryo models, she's talking about her journey in understanding why development matters, and in particular, talking about early embryo development and the critical regulators of that process. So, for example, she talked about how the inner cell mass and trophectoderm lineages are established and the role of hippo-yap signaling and in controlling early lineage establishment in the blastocyst. And I think the, the future-facing direction of the talk was the next steps. So can we capture totipotency in a dish? I think this is a very, very hot topic and perhaps the biggest unanswered question in this particular subfield of stem cell biology is really being able to capture totipotency. We're not quite there yet, as you know, she alluded to, but some of these early embryo models that you know we've discussed on the show, like blastoids, gastroloids, all that, they're going to help us unlock some of these key mechanisms, which may ultimately lead us to that dream of achieving totipotency. And the other reason why I like these award sessions and these achievement awards in particular it allows for these esteemed dignitaries in our field to really give a, a big, you know, 10,000 foot view recap of their time in stem cell biology, which I think is really informative for the trainees and in particular the younger trainees in the audience. Because for those of us who have been in the field for a while, we know about Dr. Janet Rossend and, you know, other dignitaries in, in the field like Stu Orkin. But for the new trainees, this is all new and exciting and uh, really critically important to their career development. So I think that's part of the reason why I really enjoy these talks. Yeah, she was one of my favorite guests that we had on the show. So check check out that episode. And, and like you said, uh, she's able to see the whole organism, right? And and that was kind of the theme of her talk, or at least the title was the, the, the whole view. You know, it must be a, a real satisfaction for her in her career uh, to go from the embryo. I mean, that was the title to go from embryo to stem cells stem cell based embryo models. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of this full circle idea. And uh, it's nice also to see her sharing the stage virtually, at least with uh, Nicholas Riron, who's going to be on the show actually in tomorrow's episode, because it's a nice counterpoint. I mean, he's carrying 
the torch, so to speak, and, and bring these uh, blastoid models into the next generation, along with many others. Um, and just a little kernel that I thought that she ended with, which was nice for me, was the tidbit to show that she's still really driving the science forward and showing that uh, there was a real stark, not stark, but subtle, but real difference um, between the blastoids and the eye blastoids. And the recent story, they, they came out on the same day in the same uh, advanced online in nature, I think it was. Um, and, 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 and deconstructing with the lineage analysis and, and RNA-seq there, she showed that Jun Wu's uh, uh, blastoids were actually generating amnion, whereas the other, the eye blastoids weren't. So um, nuance there where you can see that she's still really uh, scratching at it and trying to get to the truth. So that was a really nice, um, a real satisfying uh, experience for me to see her talk. Uh, like you, I really enjoyed that. And getting into the um, afternoon concurrence for me, uh, the big um, win was uh, Katsuhiku Hayashi. You know, I, I'm in uh, reproductive biology is my major focus right now. And he, he's one of the guys um, early on, came out of Mitsunori Saitu's lab and, and their group there, they were able to generate germ cells and ultimately live born pups from ES derived sperm eggs. Uh, uh, Hayashi focused on the oocyte. Um, and then also showed that they could do it in human. But, but the real roadblock there, and this is conceptually big picture for the ISSCR was a takeaway for me here is that, you know, we're building our own tools now biologically. The roadblock used to be that in order to get the primordial germ cells to form uh, more mature, lin you know, their derivatives, oocytes or sperm, you had to induce with, uh, with uh, you know, somatic, um, tissue from the gonad, okay? In this case, from the ovary, somatic cells from the ovary. And they would actually, in the human system, take the cells from a mouse uh, fetal ovary and co-culture them. And you can imagine ethically, that's never gonna fly in the human system. But what do they do here in the mouse system, of course, but this is really soon to come, I'm sure the human is they make uh, those somatic cells from ES cells. So I think we're reaching an era now where if you need an inductive tissue, um, rather than trying to reproduce the milieu with the, with the molecules and recombinant proteins and small molecules, et cetera, we're making the tissue. So we're really approaching a very, very high degree of recapitulating uh, the biology, biology of embryogenesis and organogenesis. So really exciting, I think, chapter for all of us as stem cell biologists. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very, very hot sub area of our field in stem cell biology and kind of building on that, I decided to go out of my comfort zone a little bit and focus on a theme session and attend a theme session titled comparative early development. Um, we're actually talking about some of these new embryo modeling technologies that Dr. Ross and, and, and you just talked about um, just now. So just wanted to recap a few of the trainees who are presenting some amazing work in this subfield. Hong Mei Wong, who's deciphering and comparing the mechanisms of primate development and really trying to figure out the differences between human and cytomologous monkey um, developmental processes using some of these models that we're talking about. Cody Kime, who has been in Japan for a little while. He's, um, he's a, an American scientist, but he's based at the Riken in Japan, I believe. 
synthetic embryology and talking about reprogramming epiblast stem cells into pre-implantation blastocyst-like cells. And he's also on the job market and just published a, a PNAS paper on that exact topic. Even Bezov, who gave a, actually a really neat in vitro model of the maternal blood vessel network um, and basically modeling that using 3D bioprinting and, and organ chip. I had no idea that you could actually kind of recapitulate the maternal placental blood vessel network in that way. It's not some, not often that you hear about tissue engineering in the context of studying like implantation. I thought it was really nifty. Um, Chen Dong, who's looking at a genome-wide CRISPR knockout screen to identify critical regulators of the growth in tropoblast stem cells. Catherine Polkoff from NC State, um, Dale and I have both lived in North Carolina for a little while, so we know a little bit about NC State, and in particular how they're actually really well known for their large animal research. They have amazing large animal research facilities over there. So she actually had a transgenic pig model, you know, CRISPR engineered pig that you can develop in grad school these days, apparently at NC State. So that's pretty neat. So she's using this pig model to study the divergence and the hair follicle stem cells between different species. So why, you know, how, how are these developmental processes different in the pig versus other um, non-pig species? And finally, Sarah Bazzotto talking about the landmarks of human embryonic development that are inscribed in somatic mutations. So I think a really solid subsession, a really solid section of the conference focusing on early embryonic development and some of the amazing technologies that are helping us better understand it. Yeah, I'm loving how they're clustering this. I mean, whoever designed this deserves a lot of credit because, you know, it seems like, oh, accidental. Like, oh, that's interesting. I'm interested in that too. And it's hard to even get out of the session. It's all about design, people. This is a, a really good management of the program, um, in particular virtually, because there's so many more uh, talks you can see in this format, it seems, although you kind of burn out on it. My eyes are watering by the end of the day. Um, but that brings us to today, this morning. This is day five. We covered the morning uh, as well. Um, some of the trainee sessions I like to highlight. There was uh, Ryan Goes uh, from UCSD. I liked this talk um, because they it was a hack uh, where you can um, uh, modulate the enhancer region of FOXA2 in order to augment a differentiation of pancreatic beta cells. And, you know, in a conference where it's really coming to light the strength and power of base editing and, and CRISPR, um, you can envision a future where, you know, we're, we're going outside of the normal ways of inducing cell types, you know, with, this, with whatever cocktails and instead engineering lines that are, you know, well-suited to differentiation for off-the-shelf approaches. It's nice to see young trainees doing the work because you can see that their imaginations are totally unleashed and they see this world as, um, you know, they're, they're a, a prerequisite to therapeutic application, not as some far out tech. Uh, then also there was uh, Talia Dayton. I just have to throw, throw her in, um, merit award winner from the Hubrick because of course, hailing from the lab of Hans Klebers. Um, she was working on pulmonary neuroendocrine cells uh, generating organoids from those in both healthy state and disease. Uh, and it, I mean, it really drove home to me uh, something that Dr. Clever said in his talk early on, which is that these grad students and postdocs and trainees, they just come to him with these fully formed projects. And he pretty much just has to like, you know, rubber stamp them. 
And when you see his trainees give their talks, you realize that my man is not exaggerating, it seems. I mean, he's probably very generous in his assessment. Um, but also, I would like to have access to, to those postdocs because they really do just come with a just a watertight story right out of the gate here. In this case, you could see that they're running through the entire list of patient-derived organoids, so that's really exciting. Um, there were a lot of other talks uh, I'm not going to get to for the interest of time, but I did try to catch this exciting talk. I thought it was going to be great about uh, patient-derived organoids, in this case, uh, glioblastoma organoids, but the tech broke and I couldn't hear the speaker. I, I don't think I was alone. There was a lot of O faces there. I mean, it's a bit of an issue with this conference. Every day there's a handful of these technical debacles. So I really can't wait to get back in person. Instead, though, I was happy to catch the uh, other concurrent talk from Dr. Torres Padilla, who's from Helmholtz. And uh, she was talking about circling back to Rassant about uh, can we induce pluripotency in these 2C-like cells uh, doing a really rigorous uh, molecular characterization. Of those. So that was really exciting to me. And that'll kick us into the plenary. For me, I mean, tech-wise, I didn't even know. I caught the, the first talk, caught them all, but I was really interested in the plenary and uh, Amanda Fisher's talk just from the MRC she was talking. I didn't know you could do this, but talking about sorting uh, mitotic chromosomes and being able yeah. to distinguish e e um, each one uh, individually or uh, in clusters and then doing some proteomics to see what's bound. And you can envision there's a whole other, you know, forget about peeling back the onion. There's a whole scallion, at least, <laughs> of science there where you can just use this kind of mitotic flow to unpack uh, gene regulation. So that was really exciting for me. What do you think of the plenaries, Arun? Yeah, I thought the plenaries were great. You know, it was fun listening to Amanda Fisher and her adventures in mitosis is what, is what I like to call it. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, I, I agree with you. I had no idea you could do that purified native mitotic chromosomes from different species. That's, that's pretty wild. Um, I was really excited about Samantha Morris's talk. She's a, a relatively young PI who is an expert in all things single cell. And she's using single cell to dissect reprogramming and development too. She's got this new cell oracle tool, which is a way you can predict the regulators of cell identity in silico. It's really nifty. Um, it's like a computational tool that can combine single cell transcriptome and ATAC-seq epigenome profile to actually infer to infer the gene regulatory networks that are critical to, to early development and reprogramming too. So I thought it was... Um, a great plenary and the next session that i wanted to highlight was honestly it's always one of my favorites every single year this is the women in science session at the iccr it's um it's a session that was you know chaired by some of the most amazing scientists in stem cell biology we had janet rossa we had chi yoon who's actually from industry dr christine mummery the president of the iccr madeline lancaster our friend and rising star in cortical organoid biology and Valentina Greco. I mean, how, how that, that's just a, a superstar list right there of, of women scientists, women stem cell biologists who are just leading our field. It's, um, we're, you know, and a number of them, we've been also very fortunate to have on the, on the podcast. So, you know, we feel really fortunate in that way. They were talking about the unique barriers that are experienced by women in science and in stem cell biology in particular, uh, and ways as a, that we as a community can perhaps alleviate some of these barriers. The, 
the thing I, I really liked about this session, and even though I'm not a woman in science, this this particular session was geared towards uh, women and trainees who are looking to make the jump to independence from a, being a trainee to having an independent lab, which is you know kind of the position that I'm in actually right now. So there were, in in my opinion, there were three major unifying themes of the session: the importance of mentorship, visibility, and encouragement. Also, and each one of the speakers was giving some really amazing stories as to how um, they got to where they are by a combination of extremely hard work and having people who helped lift them up. So in terms of mentorship, it's it's important to know from the perspective of a mentor and the, from the perspective of a PI, when to let go and when to let a, like a trainee stretch their wings and really achieve that independence. It's tough. I can, I'm not a PI, but I can imagine it's tough for a PI to actually let somebody go who's so exceptionally talented and also give that trainee a portion of the science being conducted in the lab. In the context of, of women in science, I think visibility, visibility is so critically important. Having women in positions of power, like, you know, Dr. Mummery, for example. And I think we're lucky in the stem cell field to actually have a number of women in positions of uh, power in our field um, and positions of leadership and accomplishment, like many of the panelists um, on this particular session and encouragement. There is one particular story that uh, Madeline Lancaster told where right before her big cortical organoid paper came out and was about to make a big splash, she was a little bit uncertain, a little bit lacking in confidence as to whether this would be a well-received story. And there was a, a female scientist uh, from a really top institution that came to her and told her that she was doing just amazing work. And that was something that was able to really boost her confidence and you know um, bring her on her way. So it's really critical to have that confidence um, and hopefully this show is going to continue to serve as a, as an avenue where that we, you know, we can lift the voices of women in our, in our field and be a positive avenue for change. So I, you know, I'm hoping that this podcast has been, uh, been a plus in that way. We can hope. And, uh, I would advise all of you like Arun, I'm sure you weren't the only Y chromosome in that session, but I would advise all of you who didn't, uh, tune in for that to catch it on the rebroadcast because it's not just about being aware of that position, but also there's a lot to be learned as, as Arun uh, alluded to there. Um, a lot of the things they're talking about in that session can apply to any trainee um, or anyone in science. So check it out and uh, you'll be able to catch Valentina again later today. She's giving the Momentum Award lecture at the meeting this year, also much deserved. and. We're not going to be able to talk about that on this roundup, but we will talk about it tomorrow morning. Um, next, though, on to another woman in science, woman in science in a, a particularly uh, powerful role, chief editor in chief. Um, we're going to hear the perspective of Dr. Sheila Chari. But before we get to that, uh, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Technologies. Reduce risk and obtain greater numbers of higher quality cells in your human pluripotent stem cell derived cell therapy development with Teaser AOF by Stem Cell Technologies, manufactured under relevant CGMPS. Use Teaser AOF to consistently culture viral safe, high quality PSCs on a schedule that works for you with whatever cell lines you choose. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash teaser AOF. All right, everyone, we're here with Dr. Sheila Chari. 
who is editor-in-chief of Cell Stem Cell. It's a cell press journal. Uh, her primary responsibilities are knowing and publishing the top stem cell discoveries, driving journal publishing strategy and managing a global editorial staff. She travels to international scientific conferences when they're in person at least, uh, and research institutions to be on top of the latest developments and meet with authors, reviewers, and readers. She's a proud member of the stem cell community and an ardent supporter of stem cell research. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us today. Tell us first, what, what have been your kind of highlights so far for the conference? How do you think it's going? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me um, back on the podcast, Daylon and Arun. It's, it's great to be here with you. Um, I've really enjoyed the meeting this week. Um, I've been surprised by uh, how, how engaging the format has been. I, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a whole two days longer than it typically is. How am I going to keep up? But um, I've, I've enjoyed the, the way that the sessions have been thematically organized. So um, I, what are my highlights? So Probably my favorite talk was Stuart Orkin's um, award lecture. I really loved how he talked, um, you know, the full span of how he went from a basic biological discovery on, on how enhancers operate all the way to um, a clinical outcome for sickle cell patients and seeing uh, the different strategies that are being used um, was really fantastic. When those two papers came out, um, in December of 2020, it was pretty dark days in the pandemic. And I don't think I really was able to take the time and stop and, and really look at that achievement and, and what we can really do for patients now. And um, the approach that they've used is really kind of counterintuitive. It's not just gene replacement, it's uh, using basic chromatin mechanisms to help uh, reactivate fe a fetal gene. So I, I thought that was just a fantastic talk. Um, I would also say that uh, the theme of modeling early human development has come across really strongly at this conference, and yeah. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. The um, first panel that uh, Janet Rassant did, on, uh, I love the way they titled it, Fascination with Gastrulation, <laughs> I wish I had thought of that, um, was fantastic for kind of setting the stage. And then you saw over the course of the conference so far, uh, people touching back on that, you know, from Matthias Lutoff talking about modeling heart development, gastroloids, um, to uh, Janet's own talk, where I really appreciated the way that she took that comparison of what we know about mouse early development from embryology and the stem cell models, and then compare that to where the human systems are right now. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. And to see Nicola uh, Rivron talk about his work modeling implantation, um, I thought that was pretty cool with the co-cultures of the uh, uh, endometrial organoids and um, the hormone stimulation. Those were some of the, the moments where I was just so um, enthralled by the talks. Yeah, absolutely. I think Dale and I were both talking about Dr. Rome's talk and how that was like one of our favorites. The fact that you can model that process of implantation ex vivo 
in vitro using these endometrial organoids is that's just still so mind-blowing to me um i wanted to get your perspective though so you know you are the editor-in-chief of cell stem cell so i wanted to get your perspective as an editor as to like what you prioritize there's so much that you can attend in a conference right and now that we're all virtual it's easy to bounce back and forth between different sessions and pick and choose the talks that you want to attend but as an editor are there particular strategies that you take towards prioritizing certain sessions and talks to attend? Yes, there is. And, you know, this year is different than how I typically approach ISSCR. So for me, on a normal year, ISSCR is all about networking. It's the only moment where everyone from all over the world is going to be in the same place. And I use that as an opportunity to meet with as many people as I can. And the talks are kind of the icing on the cake. Obviously, this year it's a little different, so I had to approach it differently. Um, so what I looked for was uh, the themes that are seem to be popping up over and over again that are most exciting to me as far as talks to prioritize. And then here again, it, the early modeling, early human development is just blowing up. And so every talk that, talk, that focused on that um, was something that I made sure to go to. But I also thought about how can I replace the, the networking that I would normally do. And I think ISSCR has done a fantastic job of having kind of smaller sessions that are on topics that are adjacent to the science itself um, that I made uh, a priority to go to and felt like it got a lot out of. So for example, the, um, of the policy and science communication panel, I thought that was fantastic. At Cell Stem Cell, we really tried to also cover those issues. And with the new ISSCR guidelines being issued, uh, I want to stay on top of that. I want to know who's really engaged in this process, um, what issues are coming up down the pike that we should be aware of so that we can um, be looking to cover that as well for our readers. Because a point that I think Robin Lovell Badge made during one of those talks was that, you know, this is our responsibility as scientists in the community to be informing the public and policymakers about where the science is and what the implications of that are for policy. And so if we don't engage in that, um, someone else will. Uh, so uh, uh, those are the types of things that I do uh, also prioritize. So I went to the early career researcher um, discussion as well. I thought that was fantastic. It's something that's shifted for us uh, at the journal that over the past year, I think, when, once we realized we couldn't meet people in person, we really had to figure out how to continue to support our mission, which is to be like the journal for the community and to support everyone and bring them together. And so hearing firsthand from um, researchers about what they've experienced and um, what concrete things actually help them um, was useful for me. And it helped me think about what I can bring back to my publisher and talk about in terms of um, supporting uh, people during this really important stage of their career. Hmm. Yeah, I, I noted um, in the past couple of years, I don't know, maybe longer, that the, the, the journal itself, Cell Stem Cell, or maybe it's the wider press journals as well, but I obviously have more of a focus on Cell Stem Cell. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, things that have been added. You know, it's evolved, like like everything. A lot of journals evolve in terms of the content. I know there was like the, from the mentor, there's like a thing where the mentors talk 
to more trainees focus and it, it helps to um, I think for your younger readership because yeah at the end of the day the journal exists for the forum right it exists for the scientific community in this case or whatever you want to call it the readers and I don't want to boil it down are you trying to sell journals right but like at the end of the day you're trying to get your the science in your journal consumed by the widest scope of scientists and to have the greatest influence and for the betterment of mankind and all kinds of altruistic goals. But at the end of the day, you do have to kind of uh, shape in your position, um, the mission and the format and the scope of the journal. Does that something that, that you, you know, like the guidelines this year, they circle back on here five years on and they, there's a revision. How often do you find that you're circling back with your peers at, at, at the cell stem cell or cell press journals largely and, and, and talking about the, the format, you know, the nitty gritty, the way the journal is presented and, and specifically like in terms of the, the science here, like you come to these conferences and is it like, okay, wow, well, here's the direction that we're going in this case to be like, wow, we're, everything's human now. And organoids were past organoids were assembloids were vascularized. Does that kind of shape um, what, what you, you would expect to see in the next year from cell stem cell, the kind of things that are really at the forefront, not just because they're new now, but also the direction of the science. Do you have to constantly revise that? Um, yeah, for sure we do. And I would say we do, we do it throughout the year, but we also take uh, moments to step back and really look at the field and share our insights on what's moving and and what uh, what we should move away from and what we should move towards, right? So um, probably once a year we we do kind of our little like strategy retreat where we talk about our you know what we've observed um, our con in through conversations with scientists through papers that we've really enjoyed. Um, Throughout the year, we really survey the related literature. And so every other week, we have our own little journal watch <laughs> amongst our editors and, and other um, people at Cell Press that are interested in stem cells and regenerative medicine. And so we, we kind of use that as a starting point and go back to it and, and really reflect on the, the trends that we, we see and what we want to pursue. And, you know, how do we translate that? Well, um, we do things like we organize conferences that are based on issues that we think are really important. You both, thank you so much, participated in our um, engineering organ and organoids cell symposium about two months ago. And so that's obviously an area where we see um, a lot of growth. And so we want to bring together communities that wouldn't normally talk to, get to each other so we can kind of be there at the outset and see how, how things shift over the next years. Hmm. So Sheila, I wanted to talk about kind of the current moment that we are in right now, this current moment in time. And the reason we're actually talking to you through a computer screen as opposed to in person is because of what's happened in the last 18 months, right? This global pandemic and it's impacted everything, right? It's impacted science. It's slowed things down a lot of times, but in some ways it's changed, in my opinion, the publication process, maybe for the better, for the better, right? So, you know, the review process was kind of expedited a little bit during the onslaught of COVID-related papers that came out over the last year, and uh, the grant review process was even accelerated a lot for certain COVID-19-centric grants. So, uh, and of course, preprints. Preprints have dominated the the preprint servers like BioArchive, and of course, Cell Press has their own sneak peek and preprint servers as well. Uh, I just wanted to get your insights and your opinion on how the pandemic has changed science for the better, you know, acceleration in science is usually a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, you know, I think we can look to some positive takeaways from what's happened over the past year. I think we have to give credit to the stem cell community and to ISSCR for the way that they mobilized um, research toward about COVID-19. So uh, when we, when ISSCR first started organizing those virtual sessions, I could immediately see how collaborative and open people were being about um, sharing their data, sharing what they're learning in real time, and actively trying to forge collaborations and move forward very quickly because of the urgency of the situation. And so seeing that that openness was um, really great for us because then we could also expedite review, we could um, actually require that all COVID content be put on a preprint before we even published it because it was important to get it out as quickly as possible. About a year ago, we um, instituted a, a new section in all of our papers called the limitations of study. And if you're interested in learning more about this, I encourage you to look at um, an editorial that we wrote about a year ago about how the changes that we're gonna make based on COVID-19. And one of them was this limitations of study section because we felt that um, an important part of the review process that was at the time happening behind the scenes was the discussion between editors, authors, and reviewers about what's enough for this paper and you know what what are the open you know issues that cannot be addressed in in this one manuscript and and what's next and let's talk about you know other interpretations without holding the paper back let's mm -hmm. let's be open so that everyone can consider and discuss these things and then take them into account for the next paper. So um, we've instituted that in all of our papers, not just for COVID-19. And I found it to be quite useful in just initiating even more productive dialogue between the authors and reviewers. Hmm. So that, that's been one thing that we've done. And then I would say the other shift is that um, this digital environment has really allowed us to get closer to researchers and younger researchers in ways that I hadn't anticipated. So um, I would say one of the highlights of this past year for me was um, the, the trainees of uh, the Till and McCullough meetings in Canada um, were organizing a workshop about uh, science communication. And they invited me to come talk about what makes a good review article. And you know, instead of just giving a talk, we realized that we had an opportunity to do something far more interactive because we had all this extra planning. And it was really important to me to, to do something that actually engaged the trainees, understanding that it's just such a difficult time to be um, in a lab right now. So uh, we kind of gave them a homework assignment, which was a review article that was under review. And they broke into groups and picked different parts. I like assigned them different parts of the review article. And then they, um, they did a peer review of it. And then at, after the, at the um, workshop, they presented on it. And I asked them to compile it all. And I gave it to the, re the review authors, which in this case was Gordana Vunyak Novak-Kovic. And so you'll see in our current issue, the whole thing has been published. So we published the review, which took into account these trainees' really brilliant suggestions about how to improve the article. They were so thoughtful. Um, and, and then the peer review itself. So uh, I, I don't think that this would have happened if, if, I, if it hadn't been for the, the pandemic and for these kind of like digital opportunities um, to meet with not just the heads of labs, but um, the trainees that are working with them. So th those are some positive takeaways that I, I've had from this experience. 
I, I agree 100%. I think there's a lot of elements that are going to um, stick around in the post-COVID era when we come back into each other's company. Um, they'll still have a lot of the, these digital, the digital residue, uh, although the, the scoring, the gamification of the conference needs to stop because I'm, I'm just getting upset. <laughs> He's so obsessed about this. He's looking at his score every single day. He's like, oh, what's your My score? My score doesn't make any sense. Okay, guys, I'm just, I'm confused. Um, anyway, moving on. The um, the the reality, though, I think what you're alluding to there is, uh, you know, the quieter voices in the room, you know, not just the, the big heads of labs, but also the trainees. And that brings me to my question. You know, in this conference, we've talked a bit about that. There was equity in science panel, which was, uh, I thought, great. And it's nice that they're, I mean, year after year, I think they're trying to pay attention to these more um, social issues. And there's a women in science panel. Um, and, you know, this is a year where we're really talking about equity, right, and access and inclusion and, you know, privilege, really. And I mean, I'm on a hundred, I, I happen to be mixed race, but look at me. I, I, I have some white privilege, right? I have some male privilege. Uh, and I think one of the first things of privilege is, is you got to just shut up and you know, kind of say, I have the privilege, I don't get to talk about the privilege, right? And when I think about science, it's interesting for me as a scientist who hasn't really quite gotten the big, the big juice yet as a scientist, I'm getting there, I'm working on it. But you know, there's an element of science where scientists, they like, they earn their privilege and then they flex their privilege forever, emeritus, right? You become a scientific star and you don't get dislodged, except in rare cases, usually involving controversy or kind of, you know, scandal um, or fraud, whatever. But, you know, to put it short, the rich get richer. The more published, get more publications, more grant funds and all that stuff. And, and your place, Cell Stem Cell, you're really, you you're in a position to sh shake that up a little bit. And I, I know you've done a lot already toward that end, but like fundamentally, it seems really difficult to change the situation because of that one thing that you earn the privilege. You know, no one ever says I earned my whiteness. You know, there's a fundamental thing of pr privilege in the other context where there's no, it's not deserved, right? So it's, you should divest from it, but how do you say you divest from something you earned or should you? Do you think that the, the system, this is my question, did we have to have some kind of radical shakeup to change the review system, the you know tenure track, just the system of recognition in science, or you know is it's you know not much to be done. It's a fundamental, you know, integral, intrinsic limitation. Mm -hmm. No, I fully agree with you, and we've debated this quite a bit within um, our publication group. You know, it's we obviously know that there are structural um, issues. There's structural racism, there's uh, you know, discrimination based on gender or sex. And what we've discussed is what is our role as publishers in this process, in science and in making science more equitable? Where can we actually make an impact? And so we've we've come up with some things and, and it's been um been interesting to see the way that our company has has actually responded to this. So the first thing is that um, they we've hired um, an inclusion and diversity officer who's part of our senior management team. So this person, um, part of their role is just focused on this. 
and they have the eyes and ears of the people making the major decisions at Cell Press. And so um, her name is Kel Lim. And so she's been charged with really looking at, um, you know, how we can promote diversity and inclusion in science. And so some of the actionable things that she's done so far, and I'm sure there's going to be more to come, is um, instituting things like uh, an inclusion and diversity form that we now require every single author to fill out on their public on papers um, for publication. And so what this does is it reports not only on the science, but on the demographics of the authors. And so you, um, we have several blog posts about it and um, our VP of editorial, Debbie Sweet has spoken about this at several conferences if you're looking for more information on it. But um, basically we ask, um, you know, are, were there people of underrepresented minorities involved in this research? Um, was there funding for that? Um, how did you think about sex and gender in terms of the, the subjects of your research, um, both for, you know, animal models, but human, human subject research, and really making sure that there's an opportunity for um, authors to uh, make this more publicly uh, available. Um, it's one small step. I know there's plenty more that we need to do. Um, we've also begun to look more carefully at our, our the demographics of, of our customers and the people that we serve. And so um, now at Cell Stem Cell, if you, if you, and many of our journals, if you submit a manuscript, we ask you to give us some demographic information. I think before there was um, kind of a hesitancy to, to ask authors about, about who they are because there's, uh, there was, you know, thinking that you should be not paying attention to things like gender or, or race. But if we don't know um, who is reviewing our papers, who our authors are, then we can't really even look and see whether we have a problem and think about how to solve that. So now we are um, we, we get this information. And so at Cell Stem Cell, it's definitely something that part of our, our bigger strategy discussions we talk about. We look at our author pool and our reviewer pool. We look at whether or not, um, the are uh, the submitted authors uh, reflects the uh, that are women um, reflect our published authors and in fact women are very successful at cell stem cell um, about the the same rate that um, submits to the journal is published with the journal so that helps us look at what our biases may be we certainly have some work to do in terms of I think ge geography um, uh, you know our our authorship base is very uh, Western centered especially the U S and so. That's one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I've expanded our, our editorial um, team to be, exist both in, in Shanghai, we're about to hire someone in Europe, um, we're on the East Coast and West Coast of the US, so we have more access to Asia and Europe from there as well. I, I want to make sure that um, we, we take a real good look at what we're, we're doing and, and try to make steps to rectify that. And then I would say the last thing we're, we're doing in terms of thinking about inclusion and diversity is you know, we have the privilege, and but it's not our voice that needs to be heard. It's it's the underrepresented minorities that need to have access to our platforms. And so you'll see, at for example, Cell has has published quite a bit about funding Black scientists, what the NIH is doing. But then, actually, from scientists themselves, um, we started a new award this year um, called the Rising Black Scientist Award, and so it's a scholarship. Um, one is given to a postdoc scholar that it's like an essay um, contest and we have a selection committee that picks them. And so there's a postdoc and a, a, a graduate student that were um, selected. They 
their essays were published in Salad and they were fantastic. I, I recommend reading them if you have a chance. And the last thing I would say is um, at Cell Stem Cell, we're really interested in uh, early career researchers because we see that there's a more diverse pool. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people coming from far different backgrounds, a, a wider range of, of countries. And so um, trying to make sure that we engage with scientists that are coming up now will help us um, be more thoughtful as we look to the future. Wow, I, I didn't expect such a comprehensive effort. And I have to, <laughs> my hat, my hat's off to you because uh, it's it's such a tough problem. And, and it's, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I ne it never occurs to me when I when I look at a new article, it never occurs to me the color of the skin of any of the authors, male, female, any of it. It's the science, you know, and the truth of it. So like, it's not something that would jump out at me. It's like, it's it's the problem of the journal editors. I mean, obviously this is a systemic issue. Um, and I think uh, there's a lot of resources, well, not enough, but there's some resources being dedicated to addressing the problem at the root. And I mean, it's really, I think, very heartening to, to hear that you're not only uh, tackling it at the top, but also doing, doing I think, your part to try and, you know, tackle at the root as well. So I, I commend you and all the cell press group that's, that's uh, got of the same mind on this. Uh, and, and thank you so much uh, for joining us for this day four episode. Uh, can't wait to, to see you next year in person, San Fran. We can have a drink, maybe, you know, coffee, maybe something. Yeah, I love that. PG. Um, <laughs> but that brings us to the end of uh, this episode for our listeners and watchers. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast to find out what we're doing at the meeting and check back here tomorrow for our next and final episode. Uh, that's going to be with Nicholas Riron. It's going to be an exciting bookend to a conference that's been very much centered on these human stem cell based embryo embryo models. So that's going to be really exciting. Uh, we've talked about it at length on this and previous episodes of this video series. Thanks so much for watching, you guys. We'll see you hopefully tomorrow. Thanks, Sheila, for joining us.